Thank you for joining us. Today's episode, we're going to take a break from the Final Prophecy series, and we're going to answer a couple of listener questions. We're going to talk about blood. Why blood? What's the significance? Why is it needed for the sacrifice? Why wasn't there a different way? Why was this way chosen? Should be an interesting conversation, and I hope you find it a blessing. Thanks. Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity. We welcome you into that conversation. Brother, I'm jealous of your your speaking your name. You got like that radio voice right off no, the get-go. No, it's just because it's early this morning, Mike, and I'm using <laughs> my, my haven't spoken to anyone yet this morning voice. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we were up a little early recording this. Uh, we had a question this week, and we're going to talk about this today. Um, and we don't have a... I don't have any notes or anything. I just have some ideas. But uh, here's the question that was sent in by a listener. Uh, I have a question, and perhaps I should know this, but I have been talking with my kids about the atonement. They are 13 and 16. While discussing the blood of Jesus makes us clean, because of the perfect sacrifice being his blood and the just dying for the unjust, my 13-year-old asked me, asked me why did it have to be blood? Hmm. That's a great question, mm-hmm. and one I've asked myself. So I think mm-hmm. we've talked about that at, at one one time. But now I could use the Old Testament and go back and talk about blood of the lamb and goats, but that does not relate to that. But he does not relate to that either. Now, they understand this is a theory, and I guess they take it on faith. Could you guys maybe speak on this for a young person? I just feel like I'm missing something to make it simple for the youth of the church. Thanks. Mm. Wow. What great a good question. question. Yeah, yeah and, and what a great it's great to know that there's conversations going on out there with parents and their children about blood and that and that this listener is taking time to do that. That's very, uh, it makes me feel good that that's going on. Yeah, would, you know, that, it's interesting too. Just, and I, I love the fact that, I mean, just it, it's it's cool that we get questions. I, I like this. I don't always know that we're qualified to give, give an I, answer, right? But, um, but, but also just the fact that this question in particular talking about blood, you know, we don't talk about blood or blood of Jesus really much, at least in the culture that we've kind of grown up in. It's just kind of correct, you know, and I, I'm not always sure. I, I know that reason either, but, um, I don't know. It's yeah, let's, let's talk. It's well, good. so I was thinking, of course, I've had a couple of weeks to ponder on this. So when I hear, uh, you know, I was thinking, Corey, is there anywhere in the scriptures that there's a, any kind of dialogue or, sermonette or letter written that talks, uh, that goes into detail on why it had to be blood or is, um, you know, I hear of conversion experiences. I hear of, you know, Alma was caught up in his sins and then he remembered Jesus and he cried out, but they never specifically talk about, um, you know, why, why the blood saved him or why it had to be blood. I think they, because they were just brought up in a culture of sacrificing animals and blood, and it was just kind of the way it always was. I wonder if if they just never asked that question, or um, you know, Adam's response to uh, to the angel when he said, "Why are you, you know why are you doing these things, or why are you baptizing?" I think it was, that was with baptism, wasn't it? And he said, "I don't know, other than God told me to do it." 
Um, and I, again, my I butchered that probably, but uh, that's kind of the attitude sometimes. And I don't know that that's a bad answer to give to children or to give to anyone other than this is the way God set it up to be in the beginning. Yeah. But I don't want to cap out and and just <laughs> say it is what it is. Yeah. Because I why. think there is some things. I I so I um. I called my friend, or I, I spoke with a friend this week in Ohio that's a biology teacher. And I just, I, I kind of texted him out of the blue. I said, hey, I'm thinking on the atonement. Talk to me about blood and DNA and and what, you know, what is blood? What's the significance? And his response to me was actually really, um, I really liked what he said. He, he uh, <laughs> we've had a lot, quite a bit. I'm looking through here. Talk for a minute, Corey, or, uh. Corey, I'll find where I'm doing here. <laughs> what you're doing. You know, um, uh, just kind of open things up. One of the differences for our understanding in our culture, I believe it is, it is cultural. If going back to the biblical days, the, the Jews especially were brought up with this idea that's brought out in the book of Hebrews, and it simply says this, that... Um, that there is not a remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And that's, um, this is the, the point, I guess, is that they, maybe they didn't understand the significance of what blood does and why we have it, but they knew that when the blood left an animal or a human, its life was gone. Right? Mm-hmm. And that had to be, that it had to be obvious they could see that, you know, and, and not to get too too graphic in, in all this, but it was the, the interesting thing is like we want to stay away from even the graphic idea of, of blood being spilled and everything. But that was like a normal part of going to church, right? You know, you think every every, <laughs> every you know, every every time you go to church, they saw something die, right? It was a bird, it was a dove, mm. it was a goat, it was a, it was a ram, or it was in Solomon's day, thousands of these all at once dying, poof, blood everywhere. And, and then sometimes the blood was not only just left on the altar, it was, it was applied to the person. Like there's an account in the Old Testament where the, the priests you know, of Aaron basically were sprinkled with blood and it touched their, their ear and their, they had to put it on their ear and their hand and their foot. And you think, well, why is that? It's just sort of symbolic to say it's all over you. But, but to them, there was a representation of the, they, they knew that the blood in a physical sense, they were taught that the blood had to be there for remission of sin. And then by applying the blood, you were saying to your ear, this is this is my source of learning, my my head, where I hear, where I process information. So this my my thinking is going to be sanctified. My hand is what I do. My 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 doings are going to be sanctified. My feet were were sprinkled with blood. This is like where I go, the ambition of my life, the direction of my life, you know, my, my thoughts, my works, my, my, my efforts, my deeds, all these things were represented by blood being sprinkled on these parts of the body. Very symbolic, <laughs> right? But, but they knew that somehow, and, and this is what, you know, it's explained in scripture was that there was not remission of sin without shedding of blood. They, they were taught that. And, okay. and we, that, that is kind of the, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation and just see where it goes really. But that was the basis of understanding, even in, you know, jewelry or the, you know, the, in, in, in the Judaic, uh, understanding of the Jews, they knew that what, whether they understood why that they, they knew that blood had to be shed for remission of sin. 
That's a huge, so that's a huge thing. That's just a foundational thing. And um, I like what you said. One, you know, the in listening to the Bible Project for the years of the podcast, it, it's I've I've learned that the Bible when when we want to understand something today, it, we don't necessarily take what was written back then and then import it right into today as much as we say, how did it affect people then? What was God explaining to the people then? And then take that theory and say, how do we incorporate that today? And what you said right there was very, very important. You said they didn't, they didn't know back then all of the intricacies of blood, white blood cells and red blood cells and DNA and mitochondria and all that. They just knew that when blood left a, a being that they had no longer had life. Right. So I think that blood represented to them life. And now today in science, we know so much more about blood. Um, but back to what you said, when something died, you know, when they went to church, they were seeing something die every time. That's, that's, that's a very different uh, worship experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't, we have to stop and think on that for a minute. What would that be like? I mean, if Sunday morning we, we walked in and there's blood everywhere and, and we not only that, but we were bringing our own animal that we had raised that had been a part of us and, and giving it away to die. And, and, to and, witness. and, and your children at home are, are brought up to know, hey, this is the animal that's going to die for us so that we can be forgiven. I mean, yeah, the symbolism aside that it all represented Jesus, but this is how God conditioned the minds of the people in Israel through the Mosaic law to be the type and shadow for him so that... You know, you imagine you're raising your children to understand, no, this animal will be killed for us, and this is a good thing. And so, you know, they're they're seeing this little lamb and everything, and then they watch it die and, you know, go through its death throes or whatever happens, you know, just that. Yeah. That, but, but, that, but that the whole family's involved <clears throat> in that. It's not just something that, oh, well, this is for adults only. This happens in the back room, and you won't see it, you know. Um, go go, go send off to your Sunday school. The <laughs> right, right. Yeah, junior church for the kids, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's... Uh, so it was intric- It was so connected that um, the blood meant life, and when that blood left, that creature died, and by doing that, you were forgiven. And that was just part of your your um, culture. It was part of your living. Um, you know, because I mean? they had to take care of these animals and feed them every day, and it wasn't like... Yeah. So when it comes to Jesus and his blood, it's this event that happened a long time ago, and we're, but we're not intricately connected to that by the physical killing of an animal every week or every month or year. So that's very, that's very hard to, um, to understand. That's why we, it takes a lifetime, I think, of seeking him out. Or we can take the shortcut and we can read the Book of Mormon, which, <laughs> uh, which is my favorite. So this is interesting to me that the, the Book of Mormon, and the reason I say shortcut, is it cuts through the mysticism and the misunderstanding that the Jews had of specifically the law of Moses and explains that, and, and I'm just going to read from uh, in the RLDS version, Alma 16, it says, this is the whole meaning of the law, every whit, that's a little piece of a word in or a letter in, in the Hebrew, every whit pointing to that great and last sacrifice and that great and sac- last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal, and thus he will bring salvation to all those who believe on his name. And so, you know, they, they point this out so clearly in the Book of Mormon. But the interesting thing is it's pointed out clearly in the Bible, too. Um, flipping to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9 is a really 
concise summary of, of blood and the significance of it. Um, I don't know that we'll read the whole chapter, but it, it starts out like maybe in the seventh verse or so. It talks about this thing the priest had to do every year. Once a year, you know, at the, the, the Day of Atonement, the, the priest did, he could only do this at one time a year, that they had the special sacrifice for the sins of all the people. And then he carried, it's interesting, he didn't carry like skin or leg bones or um, something of this animal that was offered. He only carried the blood in this vessel and he carried it into this Holy of Holies place. And this Holy of Holies is where this mercy seat was. And he sprinkled the blood on that. And in that moment, the forgiveness of sin was complete for the nation. And and every year in the whole, and the priest had to wear white linen and he, he goes in there and does this. Well, um, and there's, all this is symbolic of Jesus. Jesus was that, who this priest was representing, that he would bear his own blood, that he would literally, you know, the vessel that the priest is carrying the blood in, that was like Jesus, you know, representing his own blood in heaven. And there's, there's scripture that talks about this to complete our remission of sin. But, but in Hebrews, you know, it talks about the, the, the priest went into the first uh, tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. This is Hebrews 9, verse 6. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. So he's saying, but once each year he went into this special chamber alone by himself. This is why Jesus was the only one, right? The priest goes alone because he's doing what Jesus, Jesus was the one who had to represent his own blood. And then, um, and then Paul makes some statement about the Holy Ghost, but he, he goes, um, but then he says, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come and by a greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building or of this earth, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So Paul makes this perfect comparison of the blood of Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of the symbol that everyone in Israel understood. I mean, they everyone under was familiar with what the, what the high priest had to physically do, right? So, yeah, he, he, there's a there's quite a lot of uh, other symbolism in these scriptures as well. But um, but what he goes on to say, and this is a lot of what the Hebrews book is about, is it's explaining what the significance of the law of Moses was to people in Israel who just didn't get it, mm-hmm. right? This was the struggle, and this is why the Book of Mormon is so beautiful. The, the, the main difference that I see is that the people in America who are Joseph's descendants, they have this testimony of Christ, and with it comes this understanding that the law of Moses was just a type and shadow. People in Israel, on the other hand, have, you know, they, they idolize Moses in this law, and they think the, the law of Moses, the Torah, it was the end all. The point was that law, right? And, and, and then this is why Paul's going on and saying, hey, the law was our schoolmaster until Christ, right? And, 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 and he's trying to explain it to people who stone him and whip him and all these things for, for speaking out against the law. Whereas in the Book of Mormon, you have Nephi who, and this is 600 years before Christ when Nephi's writing these things, he says, the, the law has become dead unto us. And th- th- these are his words. He said, we, but instead we 
teach of Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, we talk to our children about Christ so that they can know, you know, the the point of, of his coming and what this all points to. But it's interesting that, so he calls all this dead, but yet they still sacrifice the animals and do, you know, the blood, the stuff that the same people in Israel, I mean, same same things that people in Israel were doing because they understood it had to be done by because Jesus commanded it until his death and resurrection. How much... When you said early on, um, you know they didn't know about what blood all what all blood did, but they just knew that when it, you know, when the blood came out of the being, that you know that person was dead or that animal was dead. Um, they also recognized that this has had to be done for forgiveness of sin. But what what was that experience? Do you think like with the Hebrews, like when we talk about? right now being forgiven, Jesus took everything up a notch, you know, into not just physical sins, but spiritual um, thoughts and intents as well. And so when we're forgiven, it's not just from actions, but from a condition of our heart, right? right? We're forgiven from, you know, lustful thoughts and things that don't involve physical action, but, um, but nonetheless, God says, you know, can't be. What do you think the Israelites, was there a so when we're forgiven, or if we've ever been forgiven and we feel clean, there's a definite spiritual condition or connection that takes place within us, right? I, I've I've felt, I've experienced forgiveness before and feeling clean, and it's the best feeling in the world. Mm. I wonder if there was any spiritual connection in the Hebrew culture of the shedding of blood, or if it was... What did that mean to them? We're forgiven. Uh, you know, what what did they understand their sins were that needed to be forgiven? And was it all more of a mental action-based thing or was it so free, right? Yeah. 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 Cuz it wasn't I mean, I don't I don't know why the sacrifices what they were covering like I know they're supposed to do them, but what was their understanding like what have we done sinful? Right, right. You know, I haven't killed anybody, you know, or, or there were all of these laws that were so black and white, like removing yourself if you're unclean for the woman for a period of time or don't touch a, a dead body. Or I don't, I'm on. No, no, that, yeah, exactly, exactly. So when they're bringing their animal to be sacrificed and, and um, I wonder what their understanding was of what do I need to be forgiven for? Or how that even worked in their culture, and I'm I'm still looking at it from my perspective. I just wonder what that whole process meant to them. Yeah, because that's that's a really good question. I, I don't, you know, it's hard to it's hard to know what their mindset was in that because did they really feel like I wonder? Did they really feel repentance, or, or rather, maybe the right word is remorseful? Did they really come like feeling like broken and contrite? Like you know, we have to do this. It, it all. The only way to answer the question probably comes back to what understanding did they really have about Christ and the real significance of this? Because for, it sounds like for generations and even today, you know, there's people who still think somehow, and, and these are in the Jews and Christian world. Some people think, Hey, when the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem someday, according to prophecy, that we're going to reinstitute blood sacrifice of animals because that's going to make God happy. And, and, and that's and again, I, I wonder, like, what's their thinking on that? What do they think they need to? Right? Are they just being obedient to a law, and that makes them feel good? You know, right? Right? Or if they think this is what has to be done to satisfy God, and on the, both those points, it's wrong because 
if they think an animal ever has to be sacrificed again, they've missed the whole point of Jesus. No, mm-hmm. that's that's the bottom line. And so I wonder back to your question about you know what were they thinking? The the only way they could have probably felt remorse or repentance is if they really understood. And at times there were groups of people who who did understand the significance of the law. Um, <clears throat> so we get the fact that the Nephites understood this, and they see it as this dead thing that they just right. have to do. Um, but I, when we, I, I believe the intent of this question is why. I mean, we've talked a lot about the sacrifice of Jesus and what it does. But I think the question is why blood and not something yeah. else. And you nailed it at the very first sentence when you said they understood that this represented life. Yeah. And so when we see, so I should have stopped talking. No, 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 <laughs> no, oh, all of, no, because <laughs> you got me thinking all of this. No, it's tied into you know, the, what this is, is. This is just the way we communicate. <laughs> we get an idea that we just keep going and going and going. Thanks for bringing us back around. No, no, the, 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 um, when you said that life, so when you're trying to explain it to your to your kids, it's um, maybe it's this blood represents life to them. It represented life, and the ending of life basically ties what Jesus did. You know, he he was able to take his life and completely bring it under the will of the Father. Mm-hmm. And and it's not about us dying, which we're going to do one day, but it's it's about dying to our own will and giving up our will and and um. But we've we've learned about the physical, what blood is now today. I want to think about this for a minute. This is what the Jews didn't understand back then, but it's so neat as you learn more and more what blood does. You know, if someone has a heart attack, Corey, you say, oh, they died of a heart attack. Well, they didn't die because their heart muscle no longer works. Um, as a matter of fact, there's machines out there completely mechanical <laughs> that'll keep a person alive without a heart yeah. a, until they are able to get a heart. Where, and, but what is it doing? Why did they die from a heart attack? Because at that moment, the instrument that circulates blood throughout your body is no longer working. And within minutes, your body can't function without, without blood. Blood, um, if you look at someone who's been out in the cold and the circulation of blood um, stops in the extremities, what happens is like the tips of your toes turn black mm-hmm. and they die. And that's that's because, not because they got cold, but because by getting cold, that circulation of blood through these itty-bitty itty, tiny vessels that you can't even see stops. And that blood is so life-sustaining in what it does that that tissue, that part of the body dies. Mm. And I was thinking about that. That's a, a, an analogy, you know, when when part of the body of Christ is sick or not functioning and the spirit's not flowing through part of the body, it it dies. And if that dead body or that dead appendage is allowed to then continue to be a part of the body, it can cause sickness throughout the entire body. You know, if, if those limbs aren't taken off, they can poison and, and infect the rest of the body and it just moves slowly up the limb and you've got to cut it off at some point. Well, if you think about how important it is if that blood represents life, to have the life of Christ flowing throughout the entire body of the church. And when it, when that doesn't happen, you know, you, you see the, the results mm. immediately. But blood carries uh, oxygen, you know, that is integral to to tissue thriving and being alive. And, and if you have a stroke, I've seen people not be able to talk and the side of their face droop and and you can give them a medicine that'll open up a vessel and allow life to flow back through. And within minutes, within minutes and seconds, you can see this happen. You watch it resolve. And if you're quick enough, 
and there's not too much tissue death, this person can starts to talk normal and they come back mm. just by restoring life, by restoring the flow of blood back into the the entire body, that life comes back. And that's, uh, you know, you can have a lot of things happen to your body, but if you slowly lose so much blood, you're, you're gone, you know? Yeah. Um, that's why, you know, there's blood drives and there's red cross trucks. And when the blood supply gets low in America, that's dangerous because that's the life of, of people. And, and it's so neat. Can you imagine a hundred years ago for people that it's so neat, Corey, that, you know, that you can take blood out of you <laughs> and put it in a bag and put it into me yeah. and save my life. Right. You know, yeah. if, if it matches up, right. There's, right. there's, there's certain things, but, but there's universal donors and all that. So blood can even go from one person to another to keep their life going. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've learned all of this. It even carries DNA. Blood has the smallest little components and, and um, you know, it's created in the body and it goes out and it's, it's the building blocks. It's, uh, you could study blood forever and see what all is contained in it. Yeah. And so, no, the Jews didn't know any of this. They just knew that it came out of an animal and that animal no longer had life. And that's that was what they equated it with. It was the life source. Well, what's interesting, too, is that, uh, and this is something I know you and I, you know, kind of exchanged some messages on. Um, <clears throat> what they did know was something different that we don't know. And in the Hebrew, I'm, I'm learning that, you know, words are oh, built yeah. on bi- building, cool. building blocks. Yeah, yeah. So in the Hebrew, you can expand meaning by adding like another letter or two because the letters carry meanings that, that change words in ways that we don't do in English. And I, I'm not explaining this very well, but root words carry meanings and then you add to a root word and it expands meaning by creating an expanded name. Like <laughs> Abram going to Abraham was adding a little character to the name, but it all of a sudden changed his name to father of, of nations, right? And just by adding a little suffix. Well, the name, and this is what the Jews understood because they understood this thing about names and they recognized roots that we don't see. This I thought was cool. In the beginning, the first man, his name is Adam, and the... Hebrews recognize when they see this name, the what we call the A-D-A-M, the, the D-A-M part, was their word for blood. And so built in, and in Hebrew, every name carries meaning associated with the purpose of their life. For instance, Moses, the name Moses meant born of water. Okay, so mm. every time they see the name Moses, they remember the baby in the basket because that was part of his name. And uh, and, it, and it goes on through Scripture, All always the names, um, and, and especially the new transformed names after covenants were made with between God and people, those names even carried more meaning because they showed the destiny or their purpose. You know, Jacob's name changed to the name Israel. Israel was, you know, God hears in that, you know, he was going to hear his prayers or the nation's prayers, the cry, he's not going to forget them. And all that is contained in the meaning. Well, and the name Adam was this uh, root word of blood. And so 
when they when they consider the name Adam and that you know his body was made from the earth and the soil and the ground and all this stuff, this comes through in the meaning of of his name. But um, this, I, I'm just going to read it. Uh, Today we present the third link in this amazing chain of uh, uh, DAM or blood, the, the part of Adam's name. Blood, an essence of human life in its Hebrew form, is built into the name Adam, further solidifying and strengthening the biblical story of creation in a way that you won't find in any other language of earth or, or on earth. So this is where I'm saying, yeah, they might not have understood the biological aspect of what blood did with all its intricacies, but when they recognized the name of Adam, they saw blood in the very beginning. That was the importance of it, and it's something that we don't see. But then it goes on, and it says, um, and, and we can probably put this link right in the in the notes. Yeah. Now it's it's at Hebrew.JerusalemPrayerTeam.org/slash/blood, but we'll have it there. Anyhow, it says note that the word blood in plural, and then it's D-A-M-I-M, is also the word for money, payment, or retribution. Now, this becomes complex in a cool way when you consider that they see that man's name included blood, but then they also equate it with retribution, which is the forgiveness of sin. I mean, our, our payment, our spiritual forgiveness was what Scripture called retribution or paying back. And so that both of these roots in the Hebrew were contained in their understanding that blood represented life, like the first man, and then blood was also required for payment. You know, and that's the uh, that's the eternal significance or maybe spiritual significance that their language carried that we don't see at all when we read the scripture. No, we don't. Well, I read Adam, and I, uh, that's as far as I go, Adam. When I hear the word Moses, I think of a long white beard and a guy in the Old Testament. Right. But I don't understand. My first thought isn't born out of the water, but that's that's huge. So so blood is tied into the to the root word um, payment, and I like it because he gives an example where perhaps the Old Testament wasn't translated correctly, and and here is a here's an example from Exodus. It says, and when when they're using the word blood instead of payment, it doesn't really make sense if you read it. It says, if a thief is found breaking in, and he is struck so that he dies, there shall no blood be shed for him. Well, what does that mean? If the sun has risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him. Or in other words, if he's still alive in the morning, for he should should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Um, then blah, 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 it goes on. But then think about this. If you if you use the word retribution instead, if a thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no retribution. Right. Now that makes, a, that makes sense, right. If the sun, or there'll be no payment. Right. But if the sun has risen upon him, he's still alive, there shall be payment. Instead of bloodshed for him, there shall be payment, for he should make full restitution. Now that's... That makes more sense. So why are you going to shed blood for someone that's already dead? That mm-hmm. so they're you're they're transposing that word payment and blood and using the word blood like the translators did when there should have maybe been used the word payment or exactly because it's not cohesive. We, we find this we find this throughout you know scripture now that this is why you know translations are making us understand better these these subtle meanings and I I guess so. 
in the in the Israelite way, they saw things in clearly because they understood words that we don't understand, and they had a culture that emphasized things, but not always for the right reasons. And now we might have the thirty thousand foot view of what this kind of represented. Um, but yeah, you know, so coming back to you know this interesting question about so how do you explain this to children? Um, it's interesting because in the inspired version of the Bible, we get this these words that even include, uh, I'm just going to read it, Genesis 6, 61. Therefore, I give unto you a commandment to teach these things freely unto your children, saying, now it's interesting that the question posed to us was, hey, how do you explain this to the child? Well, the words very clearly say, teach this to your children freely (laughs) right here, saying, and then here it goes through the process, and this is, I think, a really good summary that by reason of transgression cometh the fall. So stop there, that little chunk right there, transgression cometh the fall. Mankind sinned, and we fell out of God's presence, right? Our sin eternally separates us from God. We have nothing within ourselves to remedy that situation. Yeah, that's the transgression and the fall, right? And so when it says, which fall bringeth death? All right, and then we know again the Book of Mormon is so clear on explaining death on two levels: the temporal death, our body dying, but the spiritual death, which right now we live under this first death, the the separation from God. He's trying to prevent the second death, which is final, permanent spiritual separation from God. And the Book of Mormon explains how both deaths were overcome by Jesus: the temporal, in that our body won't rot in a grave forever. I mean, we're going to have a new body restored and our spirit, whether it was in hell or paradise, you know, before Jesus comes is going to be restored to a new body. So both of those deaths get overcome. So, so back to this scripture, Genesis six sixty one. by reason of transgression cometh the fall, which fall bringeth death. And in as much now here's the, here's the part that ties in something cool about the world and the spirit. In as much as you are born into the world, by water and blood. So, you know, if, if you've ever witnessed a human birth, both of those are, are present. Um, but he's saying, like, we came into the world by water and blood and the spirit and the spirit which is in us to give us life, which I have made, and so become of dust a living soul. Now, he, now each of these elements, the water, blood, and the spirit that give us life on earth are then paralleled to a spiritual understanding in verse 62. Even so, you must be born again into the kingdom of heaven by water, but this time it's not the water of birth, it's the water of, of baptism. By, by What that symbolizes is mean, making a covenant to choose, right? And then we do that in the water. And of the spirit, which is God's spirit, which cleanses us to make us, you know, to justify us, to change us and be cleansed by blood. So so there's a physical aspect of blood, water, blood, and spirit physically, and then there's a water, blood, spiritual mm. spiritual aspect of it. And be cleansed by the blood, even the blood of my only begotten, and that you might be sanctified from all sin and enjoy the words of eternal life and life in the world to come. So, so then it, it adds, it says, so by the water, you keep the commandment. And this is tying in the spiritual, but our response. By the water, you keep the commandments. It's saying when we come into this narrow gate, we're saying, Lord, I'm making this public declaration. I'm, I'm tying the knot, so to speak, like you would in marriage. 
I'm doing this to, to, to say I, I'm following you. And that's, it's not just the act of baptism, but it's everything that baptism represents. I've, I've wanted to turn from my carnal self. I've, I believe that I only have salvation because of you and your blood. And now I'm entering into the gate saying, Lord, my life from this point future wants to be walking in your path, not my own path. And that's, that's kind of what I think mm-hmm. is enveloped, right? And all of baptism. So it's so, and we can't get tied down and saying, well, this person died and they weren't baptized and all this stuff, so they go to hell forever. It's it's not what it means. It means that did we die in our sins with a carnal attitude towards, you know, life, or did we did we want that to change? But nevertheless, in verse 63, the water you keep the commandment, that's where we enter in the gate. The spirit is what changes us. By the spirit we are justified, but the, by the blood you are sanctified. In other words, the blood's the thing that Jesus' blood, which made it all possible. There would have been no sanctification unless his blood was shed. So he, he ties it into our response. We may, we keep the covenants, the commandments of God, and then he sends his spirit to change us, and it's all possible because of his blood. You know, that's it. When... Um that was Genesis, yeah, Genesis, the inspired six. version, right? In the inspired version, yeah. right? But that's a good segue into into understanding. I think blood. Yeah, no, that's especially when he says, "Teach this to your children." Yeah, exactly. So it's very important. This is an important question because at the very beginning of our story, we have God, you know, telling us to teach this to your children: the blood, the water. This is important. I wonder if the Adam's little kids understood it all, and then, well, well certainly they Cain, did. Cain, Cain didn't get it, no, right? But, but that's a that's a. But it was a good taught from point. early on. It wasn't just like kill the animal, blah. I mean, they understood why. I yeah. mean, God gave them that knowledge. Probably was lost through sin over time. You know, it's but, a, it's interesting too because you know this part was restored in the inspired version to our understanding that Adam was commanded to offer sacrifices. Which is interesting because this doesn't exist in the, like the King James, which we act like the King James was the only authority. There's there's other Bibles too, but there were lost books of the Bible, and and all the King James didn't carry this aspect of um, Adam and sin and and understanding and sacrifice. Um, it's implied in some other scripture that's what these lost books that we've talked right. about from time to time, where no, there's this. There's this dialogue where uh, Adam sees his own blood. In fact, in one of these lost books of uh, of Genesis, which people have said was this was part of Scripture, you know, in the Old Testament days. I, I'm not going to get into that debate right now, but but where it even ha- records this conversation that says when when Adam in this situation saw his own blood outside of the Garden of Eden, there's this dialogue where God says, "Hey." Just like your blood, you know, was spilled. He said, "I'm going to spill my blood for you someday," and 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 it, and it explains it very very clearly. And these were texts that were, you know, thousands of years old. Mm. I I can't comment on why they weren't included in the Bible, but then again, we know some plain and precious things have been changed over the years for whatever reason. But nevertheless, it seems that people, even in the early days, that long ago, had this understanding. So bringing back to Cain and Abel, what's Interesting about this whole story is, you know, we we get the big picture that Cain kills Abel because God or Satan puts that into his heart. But there's a symbolism in this story that comes out 
also coming back to blood, it's it's what you just said, Mike. I think that Adam and Eve had to have taught these things to their children. But when Abel, who was the the one of understanding, offers his sacrifice, you know, he he offers and kills an animal because he's offering a blood blood sacrifice, which was from the beginning designed to teach. The, the shedding of blood was always the type and shadow to teach this is what will happen someday. And this is why Genesis 4 in the inspired version is, is full of understanding because it teaches that from the beginning, that no, from the beginning, these animals were always a type and shadow. But Cain's sacrifice, which was basically, you know, fruit basket, was Satan's idea. And whether Cain understood this or not, the whole idea was that sacrifice totally was an in-your-face mock God kind of thing. Hey, hey, give give him this little gift uh, of a fruit basket and call that your sacrifice. Because Cain's like, okay, the you know, he's kind of the minion here, the the little useful idiot being duped by Satan to carry out this um silly thing which showed lack of understanding. And I mean, we do this totally in our culture now with every abomination on every level, whether it's, you know, immoralities and all these things. All of these things whether it's like Sexual relations, sexual relations, or marriage, or anything that the cultures put their own definition to now, is always taking something that was wholly designed to teach, and then turning it around to God and just say, "Here, in your face, you know, we're we're going to do this, men with men and women with women, mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff." Um, but but the original idea then of coming back to Cain was was lost to him, and so when his sacrifice which wasn't a sacrifice at all, when his offering was offered to God and rejected, then what does he do? Well, he goes and kills his brother out of jealousy and rage and anger. But from the beginning, it shows that he he also didn't understand what the symbolism was, and that's what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to, to miss these points. So we do dumb things to God, you know, towards him, thinking he'll be happy. You know, Isaiah records words later, uh, not related to blood so much, but about how when the people were, it said the 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 men make fires and the kids gather sticks and the women make cakes and they offer it all. Then it says to the queen of heaven, to the queen of heaven. It's like the families were missing the point. They were thinking, you know, let's have this party and celebrate and make this cake and celebrate our queen of heaven, you know? And it's like, right. They miss it. Right. You know? So again, the, the blood from the beginning was as Adam learns later in Genesis six taught that, it wasn't just that blood had to be sacrificed, but Jesus' blood had to be sacrificed, and that would only allow the final forgiveness of sin. When it, when God gives the commandment, teach this to your children, and and then I look at like a church, shouldn't the church be teaching the congregants, the members of the church, making sure that the blood of Christ is the central message of of the congregation and the worship, even though we're not bringing a lamb to church on Sunday mornings, but the blood of Christ should be the center, the focal point of, of the message. And I don't know how, how much we need to tie the actual blood into the message, but, you know, cause I think of people like, like Alma and his conversion, you know, he, he says, I, I felt the weight of my sins, and I cried out to Jesus Christ, and I was forgiven. I think the the focal point is that cleansing, that forgiveness, that salvation, being, but having a knowledge that you're saved. Um, 
I didn't hear him give a big dialogue on, on the blood, but, but, but it was all tied together, that he was saved, that he was saved from his sins, that his sins weighed him down no more, and he was forgiven. And he was 110% for the Lord from then on in the rest mm-hmm. of his life. He had had a experience with Jesus or a, or a revelation. It was revealed to him the power of Christ to save. And certainly with his understanding of the blood, that all tied in, but... Well, I guess what I'm saying is we don't, well, I mean, I, you can make blood an object or an idol even, but you have to get the meaning behind it. And that's that's revealed to you by, to some extent, this is just all a revelation from the Holy Spirit that comes to us. Yeah. Um, I wanted to read something I read on in this book, The Attributes of God. It says this, it says, Such a God cannot be found out by searching. We can be known he can be known only as he is revealed to the heart by the Holy Spirit through the word. It is true that creation demonstrates a creator so plainly that men are without excuse, in quotes. Yet, we still have to say with Job, Lo, these are parts of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Um. It says, an analogy has been drawn. You've heard this, Corey, in sermons, I bet. An analogy has been drawn between a savage finding a watch upon the sands, and from a close examination of it, he infers that there's a watchmaker. We use that as, you know, how could the world how could the world just be? There has to be a, a maker. So far, so good, he says. But attempt to go further. Suppose that savage sits down on the sand and endeavors to form to himself a conception of this watchmaker his personal affections and manners, his disposition, his moral character, all that goes to make up a personality. Could he ever think or reason out a real man, the man who made the watch, so that he could say, I am acquainted with him? That's that's an interesting right, thought when right. you take that in. So this just goes to talk about how God's ways and his intellect is so much higher than ours. And he has to reveal himself to us by the Holy Spirit that our our mind uh, is made to search him out. But, um, well, it, it goes back to when I sent that question to my friend this week, and I said, uh, I asked him about DNA and blood, and he said, uh, I don't think these, well, this is what I said. I said, contemplating on how the blood of Christ can atone for sins, he was half man and half spirit as if I could ever understand in my finite mind. That's what I sent to him. And he said, I don't think these questions can be answered by science. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, isn't that true? I said, no, totally, I agree. But then he says, uh, the whole basis of science is to disprove, to eliminate possibilities. Mm. You never prove, you will never prove in science, you won't find a scientific proof it doesn't exist. Mm. Interesting. And I like that because that takes you back to, at some point, it's God. God reveals to Himself these things, where where He He gives us commandment, teach them to your children, um, and at the same time, you know, our simple minds, our little minds, can can only understand so much. And then, in that pursuit of Him, He reveals Himself to us, and it's written on our hearts. I was, you know, I'm really bad at remembering where I read scriptures or quoting them verbatim, but I kind of I kind of get the idea. So I'm sure our listeners know by now, but. I just look forward to the day when 
when things are written in our hearts and they're just a part of us and they're just a knowledge embedded in us, you know, we don't have to read the word over and over again to remind ourselves, oh, yeah, that's the truth. It's like it's just a part of us. Yeah. You know, this is related. I read this last night out of the Book of Mormon, and um, the thing that first caught my eye was a a typical Hebrew uh, method of writing in in the poetic style was, these um, kind of they call them like a staircase or some other scholars will call it a uh, progressive or even a clim- climactic sort of a uh, tying in of, of ideas as they progress to a final point. Um, but what I wanted to share was the very last couple of verses of the Book of Mormon are Moroni's words. And I wanted to tie this in because it concludes with, with blood but it starts with this. And, and what I realized in this progression is the process that we have to come to. It ties in our, our response and, and this idea of grace, but it ties it into blood. And it's, it's really, really beautiful. Um, Moroni chapter 10, verse 29. And, and you think about this, Moroni's signing off in the Book of Mormon, right? These are his final words. And what he does is here's the summary of everything. I really think it's summarized here in two verses, and it starts, and then I even wrote that in my margin, summary of everything. And so coming back to this, if you're going to teach your children, and if if we, it's like, I almost sense, Mike, someday there's going to be this freshness of understanding in the church. We're going to come back to these understandings and principles, and when we do, it's going to be a new day. It was like being with the interns, you know, a week ago. Man, Mike, that that room was just full of life, you know, (laughs) these these young adults who are like wanting to learn and eager and just hearing, you know, as we shared in the Word together, and they're saying, this is so cool, you know, you just hear that emphasis (laughs) and the inflection. Um, But but, so this is one of these things I, I read last night, I thought, this is so cool because here here it is. I'm just going to read it, and then maybe we'll kind of parse it out. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him and deny yourself of all ungodliness. And if you shall deny yourself of all ungodliness and love God with your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you that by his grace you may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God you are perfect in Christ, you can in no wise deny the power of God. Well, the first thing before we go farther is this is a Hebrew style where one sentence ties in another word that's repeated in the second sentence, and then the third sentence ties in a word or two that was repeated in this in the second, and 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 they just kind of keep passing off and building on ideas. So so it starts out: come to Christ and be perfected, and deny yourselves of ungodliness. That's the first sentence has this deny yourselves of ungodliness. And if you shall deny yourselves of ungodliness, there's the repeat, love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you. And then it says, and and then if by the grace of God you are perfect in Christ, and perfect means to be complete or whole um, in the the Hebrew, um, you can in no wise deny the power of God. So that's leading up to denying ourselves of ungodliness. And if we do that, then grace is applied. And if grace is applied, we've, we learn about the power of God in our life. And so in verse 30, it says, and again, if by the grace of God, you're perfect in Christ and deny not his power, summarizing everything in the previous verse, then are you sanctified in Christ by the grace of God through the shedding of the blood of Christ, which is in the covenant of the Father unto the remission of your sins, that you become holy without spot. 
So, so to, to summarize that, what I see in this, and, and the progression leads, leads this way. This is the simple way to teach our children. We have to come to Christ and we have to turn to sin. That's denying ourselves of ungodliness. And if we deny ourselves and we love God, he applies this grace, which is the change in us, right? And that, that's his spirit. That's the, the promise. That's this um, to, to begin to know of God's power. It all happens when our heart chooses to change. I want to put my sin behind, and now the, the Lord begins to apply his grace. That means his spirit, and the change begins to work in us. And if we become, you know, following Christ in this way, and we don't deny his power, then he says the blood of Christ will remove our sin. And this is, you know, at the, at the final day when all humanity stands before God, uh, we know it says there are going to be those who are clean and those who are going to see God and remain in their sin. And, and in the end of time, whatever sins we had, if we tried to deny ourselves of ungodliness and applied, and his grace was applied, we have the promise that that act of Jesus shedding his blood will turn the key to remove all of our sin, and it's gone forever. And and yet, for those who don't come to Christ and don't deny themselves of ungodliness, the grace is never applied. And as the Book of Mormon states, they'll see God and they'll shrink back and remain in their sin. But But that is the end of it all, is that by this process of coming to Christ, this is our, quote, work, if you will, by, by turning from sin, this is, the, this is the point. Will we choose to do that or not? In the end, it's all about that blood of Christ to be applied that will re- make us holy. And if it isn't applied, we can't be holy. So, well, I, I, this has been a good conversation. I hope we've flushed... Some things out. This will probably be one I listened to uh, several times. Um, there's so many points there, and I know it's easy to uh, to concentrate for a long period of time, um, especially when you don't have the word in front of you. But listening to these things over and over, I pick up new things. And uh, Corey, you brought out some great things today for me to ponder on the relationship of blood and life, and that these things were taught from the very beginning. And as humans are, they want to miss the point and go on to other things. I think as a church, we've we've definitely have missed the point in a lot of ways uh, by going beyond the blood yeah. of Christ, you know. You know, there's there's one little thing, too, when you mentioned, Mike, about, hey, I you, my blood could be transferred to yours or yours to mine to sustain life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that in the ancient uh, law of Moses, they were forbidden to to consume the blood because it was something they were taught was supposed to be reserved. It was like this idea that, no, there's something special about this. You don't treat this like just anything else, right? So they weren't allowed to eat it. But what's interesting is that Jesus then commands when we have communion— Hey, drink this, and it's symbolic of my blood, right? Because this thing, it was the blood of animals. It was like, no, you don't drink that. But, but in a symbolic way, and I'm not saying communion becomes Jesus' blood because some people have that right. understanding. That's not it at all. But symbolically, it's just what you said. It's like how someone's blood can make you alive, right? We're symbolically doing that when we take communion and saying, "Hey, Jesus, I, the 
your life. I want your life in me, right? It's gonna. It's the thing that keeps me spiritually alive is your life coming in me. And this sacrifice you made is the only way I have a hope of life. And it's interesting that at that point, we are commanded to, quote, partake of the blood. You know, it's Yeah, I never thought... I know that instance in the scriptures where people were, they were just so shocked and it says some went away and couldn't follow him after when he said, and um, I never tied it. I didn't really tie it into the fact that they were so um, indoctrinated to um, be repulsed by or not be allowed to take in blood or not to be allowed to eat blood. And here he just went against their Mm -hmm. mores, their standards. That's that's true. Right. What a shock it was. Yeah. Right. But there's so many other scriptures where he's, you know, he's compared to the water of life and the bread of life. I'm the, you know, partake of this bread or or this water and never thirst, never hunger and blood. It's all um, related to that intimate needing to be infused by Jesus, taking him into us rather than just a, um, it's a deeper, it's a deeper relationship. Mm -hmm. And and I think the main Christian world uses these words and they become trite or um, they become common, you know, the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ. And yet they're very significant. I love that you pulled out even the fact that, you know, Adam, that, that the word blood is contained in very beginning of man and the same word that goes with payment, retribution. Those are all... All good things. Well, we I think we've I think we've had a good conversation today, brother. Yeah, and I hope for our friend who shared the the great question, maybe we've given you some things to think about. Yeah, and thank you for teaching your children these things. As it says in Genesis, that is that is uh, something we all need to be doing with yep. our kids. And and mine's getting big enough where he's going to be out from underneath me soon. And so <laughs> <laughs> I hope I've done enough. Never. Never enough, but God makes up the rest, I hope. You so, know, And when we teach our kids, we're just walking each other home. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, God bless.